consciousness beyond life. And I guess we're trying to raise consciousness in life. <laughs> so it's really it's a pleasure to introduce uh, my colleague, Dr. Holgar Konote. Mm -hmm. Holgar is going to speak today on the blurring, blurring the boundaries. What is new in the new anti-Semitism? Holgar is a uh, ESA postdoctorate uh, fellow and will be with us for the year. He's also a, a member of the German Sociological Association and the youth. Um, the member of the section on youth sociology of German Sociological Association. He's been doing research in areas of contemporary forms of anti-Semitism and studies of prejudice more generally, modernization theories, political sociology, and quant qualitative methods of research. Previously, he was a, he's, he taught social psychology of anti-Semitism at the Ludwig uh, Maximilian University in, in uh, Munich. Uh, he's taught at various institutes in, in Munich. He was a research fellow at the Munich Institute for Social Research and Sustainability. He received his PhD in psychology at the Ludwig Maximilians University of Munich. He also did his BA there as well as his MA in sociology. He's written, he's published, uh, he wrote recently a, a book in 2009, What Different Worlds is Possible Without Antisemitism? anti-Semitism and the critique of globalization uh, as well. So his work has been uh, not only impressive and important, but uh, he was he, uh, he received the postdoc here. Many people applied, and his work has been very impressive, and it's an honor that he's here with us. So, over. Thank you very much uh, for this kind uh, introduction. Um, the subject of my talk and my contribution to this semester's seminar series is the qualitative change in anti-Semitic resentment and the interpretation of this change. Having said this, as a consequence, new contemporary forms of anti-Semitism demand new ways to deal with it, both on a scholarly and a political level. I will derive my talk mainly from a European and a German perspective. So for the next half an hour, I will focus on the major aspects of the change in anti-Semitic resentment, beginning with the results of a representative survey made in 2009. These results show that 30% of Germany's population, I should give you the outline as well, sorry, sorry. Uh, these results show that 30% of Germany's population question Israel's right to exist. The challenge of Israel's right to exist goes far beyond the so-called acceptable critique of Israel. It indicates an anti-Semitic resentment. So far, so bad, one might say. But by far more interesting than the 30% is another number taken from the same survey. Among the supporters of the German left-wing party, the figure was 28%. More than one in every four who denied Israel's right to exist. Those numbers suggest an erosion of the once self-evident equation of terms and attitudes like left and progressive at the one on one side and non-antisemitic on the other side. This small example itself does not offer any hints about the driving forces of this erosion, but it does indicate a mingling of what we would expect to be incompatible attitudes. Things are in flux. 
This is reflected somewhat in the term new antisemitism, which suggests qualitative differences between the old, too well-known anti European antisemitism and the so-called new antisemitism. But what exactly is new in new antisemitism? And what exactly are the characteristics of the qualitative change? Do these characteristics justify the talk of a new antisemitism? And what are the political implications of this talk? To answer these questions, one must remember first, briefly, what the so-called old antisemitism was about. Antisemitism, as a generic term for all common and known types of enmity against Jewry, includes very different resentments, prejudices, and attitudes. In an anti-Semitic perspective, for instance, Jews are held responsible for the murder of Jesus Christ, the excesses of capitalism, and for plotting communist world revolution as well. This wide range of different and even contradictionary resentments comprised in anti-Semitism on the one hand is a crucial and basic characteristic of an anti-Semitic mindset. The entanglement of prejudices different to the historical genesis and contradictory in their rational sense points to an ideological formation uh, which is capable of interpreting the world beyond real societal developments. This is a very important point. Thus, anti-Semitism can be seen as an explanatory model for the not understood development trends in civil society. Three structuring principles characterize the ideology of anti-Semitism. First, there is a Manichaean separation in both the perceptible and the imaginary world into two parts, good and evil. This duality continuously encodes all experience. Only good and evil exist, and both sides are connected only by struggle, not by negotiations. Typical examples of this dichotomy are such common anti-Semitic contrasts and contradictions as I use the German term Schaffen versus Raffen, which basically means work versus creed, physical labor versus intellect, naturalness versus artificiality, or the contrast of the so-called organic cap industrial capital versus the so-called parasitic financial capital. Eventually, the confrontation between the concrete world, which is celebrated, and the abstract world, which is denigrated, becomes fundamental to the dichotomy. The solution to this conflict can only be reached, can only be reached by erasing one side. In this case, this means, of course, the evil Jewish side. Personification, the second structuring principle of anti-Semitic ideology, is connected with the first one, the Manichaean dichotomy. Because complex societal processes are not only resolved in a dichotomy of good and evil, but also, also attributed personally. Thus, these complex societal processes can be made handy and manageable. Can be made handy and manageable. Reducing complexity by personification is of course no privilege of an anti-Semitic worldview and can obviously be found in daily interaction. For instance, in blaming the politicians to whom the complex distortions of modern society are attributed. 
Third, this does not weaken the elementary role of personification as a basic structural principle of anti-Semitic ideology, especially when it comes to collective affiliations. According to a conspiracy, conspiracy theory-minded perception, it's Jewry's interaction which is directly responsible for the rattling consequences of modernization. Thirdly, this homogenizing description of the other, of Jewry, results in an imagination of an own homogeneous collective as a natural harmonic social entity. The identity forming function of the homogenizing process, particularly in times of social uncertainty, cannot be overstated. The irony of this procedure lies in the inversion of cause and effect. It is the alleged threat to the community by the enemy construction of the Jewry that enables the community in the first place. Now coming to, my second, to the second point, the main features of the qualitative change. Knowledge of the structuring principles is of course a sine qua non for a discussion of the qualitative change towards new anti-Semitic resentment. The qualitative change of anti-Semitic resentment itself can be observed in three developments. Firstly, many anti-Semitic narratives are focusing on the state of Israel, which is claimed responsible for many crises in the globalized world. So in the year 2003, for instance, 65% of Germany's population believed that the state of Israel was the biggest danger to world peace. According to this perception, Israel ranked equal with North Korea and even before Iran. The focus and overestimation of the Middle Eastern hotspot over many other hotspots results in a double standard in the judgment of Israeli politics and is a major discursive occasion for anti-Semitic narratives. Secondly, the integrative function of anti-Semitism is increasingly coming to the fore again, as it was some years ago. Anti-Semitism can be seen as a unifying band between political parties and positions that otherwise might seem very considerable, like the extreme right, political Islam, parts of the radical left, and the middle plus center. Thus, anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, and anti-capitalism can therefore merge to one formation. This attribute of anti-Semitic ideology cannot be considered as entirely new, but is an essential as well as a structural component of it. Because a substantial characteristic of anti-Semitism's paranoid structure lies in the compatibility of completely contrary stereotypes and assumptions. <coughs> From a historical point of view, this structural element always played an integral part in anti-Semitism's success. So, in anti-Semitic perspective, Jewry as such was responsible for both the excesses of capitalism and for plotting communist world revolution. Thirdly, there's an intermingling of anti-racist, human rights-based and emancipatory issues on the one side with anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist narratives on the other side. This was seen clearly at the UN Anti-Racism Conference in Durham 2001. Based on an initiative put forward by anti-racist NGOs, a final declaration on this so-called World Conference on Racism 
racial discrimination, xenophobia and related intolerance was passed, which charged only Israel responsible for genocide. The confusion between genuine anti-racist reasonings and anti-Semitic narratives, which became obvious during this convention and the follow-up conference in 2009, imply, in my opinion, indeed, a new quality of anti-Semitic resentment. So this was about all the, the qualitative change, but um, when we're talking about qualitative change, uh, one should keep in mind um, quantitative figures as well. The finding of a new quality unfolds against the background of a still going strong quantitative scope of anti-Semitic resentment within Germany's population. According to one representative survey made in 2005, 62% of all Germans are tired of being confronted with German crimes against Jewry over and over again. This is um, the fourth bar in orange from above. I am tired of being confronted with German crimes against the Jews over and over again. You see uh, the columns on the right side mainly agree, completely agree, is 20.9 plus 41, it's about 62%. And um, yes, it's, it's a very, very big um, amount of uh, approval to, uh, I would consider, secondary anti-Semitic um, resentment. So, uh, concurrently, the acceptance of anti-Zionism is still high within Germany's population. According to the same survey, more than half of Germany's population agrees to a direct comparison of the Nazi regime and the Israeli government when it comes to the treatment of the Palestinians. This is the second uh, from above, also in orange. It's called Israel's policies towards the Palestinians are in principle barely different from anti-Semitic Nazi policies. And um, 50% approved this in 2005. One could, one could continue with figures like the latter over and over again, and there's almost no likelihood that the constant approval to secondary or anti-Zionist coded anti-Semitic narratives within the German population will change significantly. So if you're talking about qualitative change, one should keep in mind that uh, qualitative change is connected with a still going strong qualitative um, approval to uh, anti-Zionist or secondary anti-Semitic um, uh, items. So. The question in the title of my talk, what is new in new anti-Semitism, suggests that, that there is at least something new compared to old forms of anti-Semitism. One can also change the question asking, is there anything new in new anti-Semitism? And in fact, following every crisis that has marked the Arab-Israeli conflict since the Six-Day War, there have been books or articles by activists or scholars with similar titles considering the newness of new anti-Semitism. For instance, Edward Foxman published a book in 2003 called New Anti-Semitism. Foster and Epstein published a book in 1973 called New Anti-Semitism. So, um, you can uh, indeed talk about the newness, yes. But that does not mean the lack of any newness, but rather indicates scholars' efforts to characterize differences of contemporary forms towards classical European anti-Semitism. To put it in a nutshell, I do see the point of newness, and in my opinion, it's not about the if, but rather about the how, 
and the consequences of this change for political actors. So when we address the issue of the new, the new anti-Semitism, we should consider the ruptures and continuities within anti-Semitic resentment, because the focus of, on ruptures and continuities gives us a chance to make distinction in a time perspective, to separate between those elements that remain and those that change, between those that vanish and those <coughs> newly arisen. In this perspective, seen from an up-to-date point of view, the ruptures are primarily all about the appearances and political actors. Hundred years ago, for instance, the likelihood of anti-Semitic resentment based on human rights discourse uttered by anti-racist NGOs was very small, I assume, because then anti-Semitic resentment was first and foremost about race, about religion, but not about human rights, not at all. The structuring principles of anti-Semitic ideology, however, remain, remain basically the same. Yet, they are being refreshed, updated, and extended by this new type of constellation of appearances and political actors. So there is, in fact, a new anti-Semitism regarding the appearances, discursive occasions, and political actors. The boundaries are blurred, but in the end, it is like old wine in new bottles. Having said this, as an inevitable consequence, these new contemporary forms of anti-Semitism demand new ways to deal with it, both on the theoretical and on the political level as well. Speaking of the theoretical level, the qualitative change has implications for the term anti-Semitism itself. It has become increasingly clear, in my opinion, that a narrow definition of the phenomenon is unsuitable to explain adequately its dynamics and contextuality. Rather, there are issues which can be assumed. For one thing, it is just of small analytical significance to ascribe those with the motive of anti-Semitism who demonize the state of Israel with anti-Zionist or anti-Semitic narratives. In my opinion, it is rather important to analyze the anti-Semitic effect such demonization in view of its societal resonance. This means a focus on the issue if and how anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic narratives are becoming socially acceptable. So the question must be which factors promote and which factors prevent the development towards an anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic hegemony in public discourse. Especially in light of the fact that a general acceptance anti-Zionist narratives will increase the likelihood of openly anti-Semitic movements. For another thing, and now I'm finally coming to the core of my talk, is the question about the newness in new anti-Semitism. According to my judgment, and this is in fact a genuine new, new anti-Semitism, we are confronted with a blurring of the boundaries of classical modern anti-Semitism. I follow here the line and thoughts of Dan Dina, who stated some years ago, that the once clear-cut ideology of anti-Semitism is splintering in many forms and plural forms of anti-Semitism with various side, side effects. You can uh, see this here, but I, of course, I do read this. Quote, the Holocaust led to the destruction of the classic faith-driven form of anti-Semitism. Morally broken, it cannot be reconstituted in conceptually similar terms. Without the appropriate conceptual density, however, 
is hard to describe the negative sentiments extended towards Jews or Jews. All that remains are particles of resentment emerging from the disintegrating mass which are covered by what is imagined to be anti-Semitism. Like milieu, these then cover the various incriminated phenomena which have some to be associated with, associated with the Jews. We see against the earlier historic density, the nature of these particles of resentment should be perhaps be described not as being anti-Semitic, but rather as anti-Semitizing. This characteristic, however, does seem to be quite ubiquitous. Oh, my English. Let me down. Ubiquitous. Um, unquote. So, single elements of the classical anti-Semitic ideology diffuse and combine, therefore, with other narratives. The blurring of the boundaries of anti-Semitic narratives suggests an increase in the possibilities for political actors to articulate a somewhat encoded anti-Semitic resentment within the sphere of public. <clears throat> in the year 2002, for instance, the German politician Möllmann of the German Liberal Party, which is a key player in German politics, tried this during an election campaign by blaming Ariel Sharon responsible for all the things that went wrong in the Arab-Israeli conflict. He did not use openly anti-Semitic remarks in the beginning, but I admit that he did. But rather, in the beginning, he did use anti-Zionist narratives like blame it all on the Israelis and secondary anti-Semitic ones like the Israelis tell us to remain silent about all the, about all the crimes they did towards the Palestinians, but I can't remain silent anymore, someone needs to stand up against this taboo, etc., etc. He did this clearly in order to mobilize and gain more votes. The outcome of this story can be seen in two ways. Firstly, and this is the good news, for this time, the strategy was not successful. The German Liberal Party did not win the following election. In fact, the result was disappointing considering the expectations and the polls. Secondly, it took the rest of Germany, Germany's political and cultural elite very long, indeed very long, indeed it took uh, several months, to mark Möllemann's behavior as anti-Semitic and scandalous. That is the bad news, that is real bad news. Although, since then, only one German politician, apart from the lunatic fringe on the left and the far right, of course, tried to do the same. This, of course, does not mean that there will be no testing of the boundaries in the future by a mainstream politician in Germany, not at all. Especially when one is considering the latency of anti-Semitic resentment within German population. For instance, anti-Semitic stereotypes presented in the guise of criticism of Israel, like shown before, carry no or less stigma in Germany and thus can be expressed publicly, can be expressed publicly. First, clarification is needed regarding the possibilities of gaining political influence by using structural anti-Semitic codes in the political arena. On the other hand, as a ramification of the blurring of the boundaries of anti-Semitic ideology, there are institutionalized efforts to take the blurring into account. The so-called working definition of anti-Semitism, given by the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights, is a good example of, of these efforts. In this working definition, for instance, the following criteria or the distinction between so-called legitimate critique towards Israel and anti-Semitism are described. 
Firstly, the direct equation of the democratic state of Israel with the Nazi regime in order to transform the critique to all Jews and make them responsible for the politics of Israel in general. Secondly, the usage of classical anti-Semitic stereotypes such as Old Testament-based hardness or wageful Israel. Thirdly, the delegitimization of Israel and fourth, the usage of double standards such as talking about Israeli state terrorism and simultaneously denying the terrorist character of Hamas. Despite these institutional efforts to restructure the boundaries between a legitimate critique of Israel and anti-Semitism, a dynamic gray area with nuances and ambiguity between latent and manifest anti-Semitism, between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism still does exist. This proves on the one side the dynamic character of anti-Semitism, and on the other side the need for precise look in order to interpret this phenomenon. Structurally, the shift towards new areas of conflict and qualitative change are related to, to the fact that in Germany and in Western Europe, as well, the use of openly anti-Semitic resentment in the tradition of modern ethnic anti-Semitism is widely tabooed when it comes to the public discourse. Therefore, anti-Semitic resentment must take on different forms which are not discredited by the Shoah if it wants to be healed and recognized. Yet this thesis of indirect communication, which deals with decades of development, is not sufficient enough to explain the current process of the boundaries blow. The splintering of anti-Semitism's once coherent ideology in multiple anti-Semitisms and the mingling of human rights-based sensitivity and anti-Semitism is just one side of the coin. The other side focuses on a more political and practical level. And here the question of the consequences is apparently important. So what are the implications for one's courses of actions and options? In my opinion, taking the blurring the boundaries thesis seriously implies that a bare refusal of classical old anti-Semitism leads not logically to immunity from getting involved in multifarious and contemporary or other forms of anti-Semitism. Rather, the resulting manifoldness and ambiguity constraints form to the efforts of reflection. What would, what would such a reflexive and sensible position look like? I want to illustrate this briefly with an example from my hometown Munich. In 2003, 20 neo-Nazis attended a rally which was set by an anti-globalization network called Attack against the then forthcoming war against Iraq. Iraq. The anti-globalization network considers them, themselves, of course, as anti-fascist, anti-fascist, anti-racist, and thus anti-anti-Semitic. <coughs> the question now is how the anti-globalization network reacted towards the fact that openly anti-Semitic neo-Nazis attended the demonstration. If truth be told, there were two positions within the anti-globalization network regarding the question of how to deal with this issue. One side, which was by far the bigger one, the so-called major position, stressed the argument that someone cannot defend against applause that comes from the wrong quarter. They put it even more elaborately and sort of postmodernish when they stated, quote, that there are no definite signs anymore and thus these can adopt a variety of meanings, unquote. In other words, 
it was the communication process itself which is to blame, but attack as political actor is helpless against takeovers in general. The questions about the reasons for the wrong course of laws, why buying new Nazis joined their rally of all rallies, never appealed to them. But after all, as far as I know, Neo-Nazis do not tend to join any arbitrary rally or demonstration. This was exactly this was exactly the question, the other, the minor, the very minor position uh, within the anti-globalization network dealt with. The sometimes hard examination and revision of one's anti of one's own anti-globalization agenda and program, if they are to some extent attractive to, let us say, neo-Nazis. As one can see by means of this small example regarding political actors and movements, a protean, manifold, flexible resentment like anti-Semitism needs a reflexive approach when it comes to the question of how to handle with this resentment. This, of course, and here I'm coming to the conclusion of my talk, is even more critical for a scientific approach to the subject in order to identify changing forms of anti-Semitism and to marshal active resistance. Thank you very much for your attention. So, thank you, Holger. So, uh, I'm going to start off uh, with my question. It was a very good presentation, and I think because it was a good presentation, you have given me a lot of food for critique. So, which uh, is, I think, a, a positive uh, response. Um, so, thank you. So, so my, my question and my critique is uh, in more in terms of context. What is the influence of uh, historical notions of anti-Semitism in German society, ideology, religion, symbols, uh, and various cultural socioeconomic processes in the local context of anti-Semitism? And how does it relate to global, the global contemporary context of anti-Semitism? So you posted Diener's uh, comments about uh -huh. anti-Semitism. And I, I disagreed with it in the sense that, and, and you do interesting work in globalization, what's the impact of globalization on anti-Semitism? Because on the one hand, you have what Hassan Tibi calls Islamism, mm -hmm. which is very clear in terms of their anti-Semitism. They speak openly about destroying Israel, they speak very openly about the perceptions of, of Zionists and also of Jews. And they're straightforward, honest, and open. And yet, in, in the liberal Western context, we, particularly in the university, have a very difficult time of labeling certain, perhaps, uh, orientalized uh, groups of people as being anti-Semitic, because it's politically incorrect. So on the one hand, you have a social movement which is inciting to genocide and openly trying to commit genocide. And I use the terms very <coughs> deliberately. And then in the West, in places like Germany, we have sort of a liberal establishment that won't, um, that, um, that doesn't engage the social movement, on the one hand. And yet, in a country like Germany, we'll trade uh, increased trade with Iran, and not only increased trade with Iran, but increased military trade with Iran, and help them to build uh, nuclear reactors and uh, monitoring military monitoring systems for their defense forces uh, and the like. Now, is that is that anti-Semitism in a sense? Is that part of is is the European Union 
and Germany feeling a type of anti a, a genocidal in-your-face anti-Semitism, and yet sort of maintaining a status quo of democracy and integration and uh, politically correct liberal uh, value system. So the context of globalization I find um, fascinating. And just one quick point too about the discourse that I find alarming in, in the German context. Um, a few months ago, there were two Israeli kids that made national news. They were in a discotheque in Berlin, and a, I believe it was a Palestinian or a young Muslim uh, person approached these two Israelis in the bar and asked them if they were Israeli, and they said yes, and they were, they were beaten up badly. And actually, they were ultimately arrested. They were arrested, and the, the perpetrators of the crime escaped. And the two Israelis went to the hospital, and they were beaten badly, but they were okay. But the discourse was amazing, and there were several scholars from the Technical University of Berlin Center on Antisemitism that actually stated in the media and in public events that there's this whole debate now between antisemitism, Islamophobia, the new antisemitism, and more relevant than contemporary antisemitism. But the discourse was, by leading historians and sociologists in Germany, that it's because of the Israeli policies in the Middle East that this is causing the problems on the streets of Berlin. It's not anti-Semitism, it's the Israeli policies that's causing problems here. Now, for me, this is very reminiscent of sort of the liberal model of not only blaming the victim, but this is reminiscent of German anti-Semitism. So it was the, the Jewish business owners that were the problem. So during Kristallnacht, if they're, if they're uh, businesses were attacked, it's because of the poor business practice of Jewish business owners and the Jewish uh, race, if you will. Today the discourse is the problems on the streets and in the universities of Germany is because of the Israeli policies. And it's a discourse that if it's extended to its uh, rational conclusion is disturbing. Because this excuses the anti-Semitism and this makes way ideologically, if you will, for the destruction of the state of Israel. It's always going to be the Israelis' fault, in a sense. So how does, so, so it's, I'm, I'm, it's a bit round, round though, but how does this new or con contemporary form of anti-Semitism fit into globalization, processes of globalization? So on the one hand, you have the exploitation of European anti-Semitism to yeah. the Muslim world <coughs> gaining power, and it's beaming big. Being, being back into uh, Europe and Germany. Uh, there's uh, um, I, 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 uh, lots of questions. Um, I just try to um, work it one after another. So you asked about um, know, historical level, historical influence. And sure, you, someone's got to always remember that um, German society as well as Christian or European society um, are, you know, they're living with a, um, a resentment against Jews for about, let's say, 1,500 years. So it's deeply interwoven in it, very deeply. It's uh, got a long tradition, and you know, it can be refreshed with, with you know, with, a, with the whole uh, 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 Israeli-Palestinian thing and so on. Um, just can can prove the trade. It's it's. You know, but on the other hand, you know, this, uh, this plain historical explanation um, 
this seems also some some of dull to me because that's you know um, like Hannah uh, Arendt claimed it too. You know, there is no uh, such thing like uh, anti-Semitism is was always, will always be, and it, it's not forever. It's a social phenomenon. So, um, but it's deeply rooted in tradition in Germany. That's, that's, that's true. So, um, the impact of globalization, I guess that was the second question. Um, no, the second question was, yes, I, I do remember about um, how I would consider, um, you know, the, the whole material, you know, uh, um, when the German, um, Industries uh, deliver goods to, to Iranian. And of course, you know Iranian is openly anti-Semitic, and then this is a very manifest uh, statement. So uh, one can say, one can claim that it's just for economic reasons, uh, and that they don't do it by by intention or purpose. But the outcome, and I will, will always look at the outcome or the fact, like I told in the uh, in the speech, the outcome is of course um, anti-Semitic and. Um, you know, the validating uh, the dictatorship in, in Iran is uh, no question about it. So, um, and then you mentioned um, the thing with the uh, true Israeli guy students in, in Berlin. I don't, frankly, I don't know what, what uh, people from the Berlin Center did say exactly. So, but um, of yeah, course, I know they actually said it's because the so, but, the, but the, the problems are because of this Israeli policy. That blaming the victim. If they said so, it's always yeah. But this, this is, but this is in effect blaming the victim. You know, they were beaten because of so. Um, and um, this is always um, uh, yeah, anti-Semitic and of course then racist and whatever. So, um, but I'm uh, and um, of course um, if they if they had said so, um, then uh, I totally agree uh, agree with you. Uh, the other thing. Um, Impact of globalization. This is um, a huge question, and I can't. Uh, frankly, um, you know, let's put it this way. I'm totally aware of you know Islamization and Islamist uh, uh, anti-Semitism, but I, my intention with this talk was to put the focus on what's going on in the middle of society, middle of. German society, the middle of European society. So, because it's easy, especially for Germans, to um, to claim, oh, look at these Muslim anti-Semites. Mm. It's very, especially in a, in a German reference, and they do so. Like, I can assure you this. Um, look at look at these stump Muslims. They are all anti-Semitic, and um, and for me, that's um, when it comes to, to uh, especially to Germany. That's not the point. That is a point. I don't want to marginalize this, not at all. But um, in Germany, it's um, you know how to measure uh, um, anti-Semitism. It's always about classical anti-Semitism, like items, like uh, approval to items, like um, I don't know, I don't Jews have too many power, too much power in the world, and, and things like that. And when you um, change your focus on secondary anti-Semitic items, like um, you know. Like this one, um, Israel's policies towards the Palestinians are in principle very different from anti-Semitic Nazi policies. So, with this inversion, you know, um, and you can see this is uh, about fifty percent. Uh, you know, I guess.
guess that this should, should, should be um, considered as, um, of course, this is anti-Semitic, nothing else. Uh, but you know, you can't deal with this uh, figure in, in, in public discourse because you can't say that 50% of Germans uh, are, are making um, uh, anti-Semitic remarks. So what would be the outcome in public and uh, policy discussion? So that would be devastating. So uh, scientists agree that they just, you know, we've got these 15 or 20 percent, let's say 50 percent of people who make openly anti-Semitic remarks, and uh, we don't look, keep those to, um, to this sort of thing. And um, the globalization thing, of course, um, anti-Semitism, you know, example, Japan is a good example. In Japan, there are, I don't think there are many Jews in Japan. Almost none. But in Japan, um, the um, Elders of Sign, the book, conspiracy book, uh, is selling very well, for example. So this is also an outcome of globalization. So anti-Semitism anti is, of course, a globalized phenomenon. So globalized means, of course, it's not just in one way, but it comes back. You know, and the thing with, uh, with Berlin, when the Israeli students uh, uh, were beaten, so it's clear that it's coming back. Because if you ask who were uh, the actors of this beating, and you told me uh, the um, Arab guys or whatever, so it's coming back. That's more concerned by the discourse of the intellectuals. Okay, more, more. Um, I think one one question that, that kind of emerges is to what extent the new anti-Semitism or do you think that the new anti-Semitism is structural, or to what extent is it contingent? And and by that I mean, does um, does do Israel's actual policies matter in that sense? I mean, or if Israel didn't exist, would it still be there? You know, I mean, could if Israel all of a sudden, you know, if they did come up with a two-state solution and they're, you know, then would this go away, or would it? Do you think it would? I mean, this is counter. You know, I'm asking you to, you know, uh, suppose things that haven't happened yet, but yeah. what do you think? I mean, would it, um, would it find some other outlet, or would it go away? Uh, I don't think it would go away. Not at all, because in my opinion, um, but I'm, I'm a sociologist, I always um, have this uh, societal um, thing in my mind. It's um, a societal problem. It's not a, it's not a, a problem, a political problem. If there were two states, and Israelis and, and Palestinians uh, would have Peaceful uh, together, that we still would have anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. So um, it's um, is this uh, is this an answer mm -hmm. sufficient for you? I don't know. Yeah. So uh, to make this clear, you know um, what I'm talking about. I mean, this is a kind of a, you know a very sharp statement uh, made by uh, Max Horkheimer uh, from 1941. As true as it is as it is that one can understand anti-Semitism only from our society, as to it appears to me to become that by now society itself can be properly understood only through anti-Semitism. This is going way far, it wouldn't go that far, but you know. Well, does, does your model offer predictions of what would happen, would you say, if you know there is a two-state solution? And, no, and, no, no, no. no. I wasn't clear on something. I yes. probably misheard or misunderstood. Yes. On the one hand, the 
I thought the goal of your presentation was clearly to demarcate what was new in anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And the newness had a lot to do with the state of Israel. Is that correct? That's the first premise. The second yes. consequence is that I thought I heard you say that it would be disastrous to enter into public discourse the statistics concerning the state of Israel being the new anti-Semitism. Please consider that I'm not a native speaker. Um, I maybe <coughs> some things sound off, but um, what I want to say that, that what I would consider this as disastrous, but German politicians would consider this as disastrous. But you would be, so I, what I was trying to look for, what are you advocating to answer the problem? Because just the other day, I attended something, a, a, a speaker's presentation here on, on enlightenment, Arab enlightenment, um, and the whole focus was, for me, astonishing that a scholar, I think she's a Lebanese, but she, 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 a scholar would present that... Um, the chaos and the pain and the despair of Arab intellectuals in understanding their world is totally hinges on the defeat uh, in Palestine in 48, 67, etc. And the only glimmer of hope was Hezbollah. And, and that did not raise any issues from anybody listening, including myself, because I was too astounded. And I don't understand why someone might say, you know, let the Arab world learn from the state of Israel how to go about its business of democratizing whatever the faults of Israel or the United States. It's the values that could prompt a recovery from despair, inertia, and resentment uh, of Jewish victories. And so that, to me, is a program. I've not heard anybody say it, Arabs, learn from the Israelis, don't, except Said, who said, um, in, a, in an essay that I found fascinating, he said, the Palestinians have to learn from the Jews how to take the higher moral ground, which for him, as I understood him, meant betray yourself as victims and you will get something. So okay. that's your question. Your question was about what was my key message today. My question was, what is the the zeal within it? What do you what do you? It isn't just a closet. Yeah. It's a it's a it's it's a public crisis. And so, what would you what do you suggest should be done? Very <laughs> <laughs> politician. <coughs> you know, I can, can answer this in, in a, you know, on a scholarly level. And for example, um, what I would do is to consider this uh, figures, for example, seriously, and to uh, or to um, to say this this is the amount of in 2005. I have to admit. They were going down a bit uh, in 2009 uh, of people in Germany uh, approving anti Semitic uh, uh, items. 
So, and we have to, and we have to look very, very uh, um, seriously what are anti-Semitic actors now. And it's not done with the with the European uh, um, uh, Union thing I I, um, I mentioned before. You know, I mean, with the, with the uh, um, distinction between critique uh, on this earth, as well as politics, towards anti-Semitism. Would you consider as part of the new anti-Semitism in Germany yeah. that two very clever and cynical objectives are being uh, achieved by comparing Israel's behavior towards the Palestinians to the Nazis? Number one, they somewhat absolved the Nazis, and number two, in doing so, they somewhat absolved the Nazis from their crime, and number two, by using the uh, current Nazi, they're absolving themselves because the Nazis were German. And the, yeah. and the Nazis can come from Mars. From Mars. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, the second point, I totally agree with you. This is a, a um, you know, it was um, a development uh, which um, began shortly after World War II. You know, that the Nazis came from elsewhere and it was blamed all on Hitler. And, and you know, when you, when you read the, the, the first service made from the US uh, military government in Germany, the youngest service, I mean, in 46 or whatever, or 47, there was, uh, you know, was the same outcome. But that point you're probably witnessing yeah. here, I believe, is a revisionist history. Conversion. I wanted to ask, not a uh, expert in this, that um, I keep in hearing of um, Iran and all these countries of being the biggest threats um, to the Jewish nation or to to um, Israel and everything. And they're known. They, as Charles say, they make their intentions known. But Germany does not make their intentions known. It's just that, as you say, it's like all this is hidden. What is the threat that Israel or the Jewish people are going to feel from Germany? Are we? Do you think that there's going to be some alliance in the future with? the German people, or are they going to keep, I don't understand, what, what is the threat that we do get from all these numbers and all the statistics from the, from the German people, or other people, other nations in the world that are not like Iran, that are clearly saying we want to destroy yeah, Israel? Yeah, yeah. So, um, someone's got to ask um, these people if, if they um, um, are aware of these figures, that's what I ask, answer you, you know, but I don't know. As, just as a footnote, I, I understand the rationale and the reasons for Iran and radical Islam's social movement and its sweeping to power in Gaza, Lebanon, and other places. That I understand in a way. But I don't understand the sort of the liberal reaction to it or the liberal appeasement or acquiescence to it. This is what keeps me up at night. And intellectuals and scholars who refuse to engage these issues. You know, we are still the only center in a North American university dealing with this. It's this yeah. Uh, a two-part question and an observation on those figures. I, I look at the uh, the first two questions are, are really very similar flavor as are the second pair, and the, the, the results are are slightly different. And so the first question is really: Do you ascribe the differences? You know, between the answers in the first two questions, so two, and the second, to anything specific, or uh, is, is there any meaning behind that? Uh, the 
observation, I find that first question kind of interesting because it, it inverts the reality because mm -hmm. the, uh, the question about Israel implementing a war of extermination against the Palestinians when, when what's going on is really an attempt at the reverse. It's sort of interesting that Israel gets accused of, of <coughs> what its, again, what its enemies are really trying to do. But the question is, you know, say, look at, at those first two questions, Israel's implementing a war of extermination against the Palestinians and Israel's policies towards the Palestinians are in principle fairly different yeah. from that. Yeah. Is, is there, what do you ascribe the difference in the, in the answers to those? I, I would expect most people okay. to have pretty much the same answers. Yeah, but it's, uh, and for German reference, it's uh, of course a difference if you say, uh, you mean take the war of extermination is bad enough, you know, but the Nazi comparison, that's, that's what it's all about, especially for this German reference, because um, this, this is the inversion. You know, if they are the Nazis, yeah, the Israelis, then we aren't anymore. But, but I, that sort of implicit in the first question, yeah. it just doesn't use the word Nazi. Yes, absolutely, but it's vital. It's, it's you know, it's a, a, a raise the flag word, especially in, in German uh, um, context. And one thing I have to add, you know, when, when you uh, make this, um, I can, can show you, I got this uh, on a, on a European, um, you can't see this that good, but you know, this is this is the Eurobarometer of, of, of uh, 2003, um, which uh, a nation is the biggest threat to world peace. You know, you see the average uh, above it's 59% uh, of, of our average uh, European Union, and you see Germany with 65, and you see uh, leading the Netherlands with 74, <coughs> and so on. So uh, this this is not only um, about Germany, this is about mm -hmm. Europe. So, and, um, yes. And they didn't ask this question uh, uh, never again, you know. They just asked it in 2003 when, when the Iraq uh, war uh, was going on, and all these peace demonstrations in Europe, and uh, uh, then they uh, published it, and then was a kind of an outcry, you know, especially in Israel. And then they said, oh, no, we don't do this thing. <laughs> but the, uh, on the other hand, they, they had some methodology, methodological uh, mistakes. So they, they had just Israel, for instance, but they had no Palestinian um, whatever state authority. So, but it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, gives some hints. Mm -hmm. but one of the things that yeah. strikes me very well organized rational presentation is that you're dealing with something that is inherently irrational. Uh, those of us who are involved in advocating for Israel uh, come up with some facts proving in general, Israel is okay, it does much good in the world. That doesn't mean anything to the people who have blind hatred for Israel, which is not based on anything rational, it's anti-Semitic or giving it a clearer name, Jew hatred, 
I don't know how we deal with this. For example, uh, Charles mentioned Israelis were attacked and, and, and hurt because they're Israelis. Well, really because they're Jews. On the other hand, uh, there's a lot of hatred, or certainly widespread disagreement with American policies. Some wars, American imperialism, there are many, many reasons, rational reasons, why thinking people can seriously disagree with America's policies. And yet, outside of Islamist <coughs> groups like Al-Qaeda, who certainly want to target Americans, it's not the same, anti-Americanism is not the same thing as anti-Israel Anti-Israel, we've all come to understand, well, that's a nice cover for anti-Semitism. Anti-Americanism, to me, you may disagree, seems to be based on some of the things America does, has done. Uh, whereas anti-Israel, yes, it's really at the bottom because of what Israel is. Because Israel does do much good in the world. It doesn't get much credit for the good that it does in the world. So there's an irrationality there. And what one of the many things that troubles me is we're dealing with this rationally. You present a lot of very valid points. And I don't know where it gets us. And that's what gives me a yeah. mm -hmm. Uh, and my, I have a question regarding the causes of the new anti-Semitism. I, mean, I would like to, to hear from you is, uh, is what your opinion is uh, the an new anti-Semitism consists of. Is it the re-emergence of the uh, <coughs> old sleeping, uh, old anti-Semitism that just re-emerging uh, now? Or is it uh, influenced by the uh, demographic changes that took place in Germany and in other parts of Europe as well? Mm -hmm. And can it be considered to be an indicative for changes to come in other parts of Europe? So I was talking about uh, Western Europe, yeah, not Eastern Europe. So no, that's I'll, a whole different story. That's a different, to Western that's also different anti-Semitism in, yeah. in, okay. in, in Eastern Europe. It's more based on uh, religion, especially in Poland. In Hungary, it's it's, uh, it's very uh, very uh, um, serious situation. But it's talking about Western Europe. I don't know. I just I just don't know. I don't have a, an idea how the relationship between uh, the shifts and Demography um, are playing a part in, in, this, in this thing, you know. I guess there is some, but I can't. I can can give you a feel. You know, when maybe uh, if you look at the you know criminal records and, and they count anti-Semitic incidences and uh, incidents, and one can see oh, um, uh, the, the, the criminal actor, where he, where he's coming from, is he does he have a Muslim background or whatever? But that I don't know. But one thing's for sure, you know, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, uh, um, just um, 
it, it's not God because of the Shu'ah, especially not in Germany. It's not God. It was always there. Just um, it's probably flexible. <coughs> just had uh, um, came to, to new appearances for especially uh, you know um, focusing on the state of Israel or focusing on you know. There's some coded uh, anti-Semitic uh, remarks, uh, especially in, in Germany and in Austria. There was a very popular politician in Austria, and he gained many votes uh, in, in, in Austria, Mr. Mr. Heider. And he always, he did not claim uh, openly anti-Semitic remarks. He always kept talking about, uh, you know, these guys from the East Coast, US East Coast. You know, these guys. <laughs> They're ruining our economy, and you know, but everyone, everyone knew what he was talking about, and that was enough, because you know, this was a guy who, who, um, he, who he did met with as as veterans or someone, so he was, um, I don't know, so it was, um, it was always an issue, always. And also, uh, just as a point, I, I wrote an article that captain on anti-Semitism and in Europe, and it's slightly higher in Muslim communities, but for various reasons, it's not so significant, it's yeah. a little bit higher. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not uh, so important. In Europe. in Europe? Or in, in countries, countries. Or in countries with Muslim populations. Yeah. I mean, that plays into it too, the yeah. guilt, yeah. I think. And the marginalization, it's, it's complicated. So it, it, in and of itself, it's not, we didn't think it was significant. But also as a footnote to what Haider was saying, Ahmadinejad was in the United States. Yeah at the United Nations, and he spoke about, in literally in the narrative of the Protocols of the Elders and stuff, yeah. he spoke about a small secretive group that took over the American economy, infiltrated yeah. its security forces, and blew up the World Trade Center. And, you know, the, the Western, the American media was clamoring to interview him, and Charlie Rose, Larry King, whatever, all they were all interviewing him, and nobody challenged him on this issue of his narrative. It's astounding. Um, the new anti-Semitism, because of the boundaries, uh, have, have really blurred. Okay. How do you see the, the propagation of anti-Semitism in the new anti-Semitism versus the more, if I can use the word, traditional anti-Semitism? Uh, we can use the example that you gave of, of Japan, 